0: Thank you, Joel and uh, worship team. So these are random things that your pastor notices while uh, church service is going on. Uh, worship team, I marveled to watch all of you while you were playing your instrument, singing in full voice as you played. That's not easy, and that doesn't always happen, but that just blessed my heart that you were up there not just playing but leading and participating Thank you for your ministry in uh, worship. It was a blessing. Was that not good this morning? Yes. Amen. Um. We are working our way through a a new study in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to open it to the little New Testament letter of Galatians. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the chair racks around you. You could grab one of those or you could pull it up on the Internet, I'm sure, pretty easily. And uh, we are going to be starting Chapter 2 this week. A couple of uh, housekeeping things beforehand. I was talking... Uh, before church with Rhonda and Heather, and they said, You haven't said that you're gonna be a grandparent pretty soon. And I thought, I ha- Oh, I haven't, have I? So some of you know, but our son Jaron and his wife Michelle are expecting, they're almost halfway through, and uh, expect a-, a grandbaby in July. Uh, just an announcement your pastor's wife is probably moving to Idaho in July. We may not see her. Uh, but uh we'll see how that pans out, but super excited you know i'm i'm fifty seven I feel like I waited a long time to be able to make that announcement, and then I forgot <laughs> over uh recent weeks uh, just. For you as a church to know, uh, tomorrow morning, Pastor Jeremiah and I will hop in the car and head up to Seattle. Uh, we are participating in Baptist Network Northwest uh, Pastors Prayer Summit on uh, Monday through Wednesday. So we will be out of the office and back after that. Scouts, you won't see me tomorrow. I know that doesn't break your heart, but there you go. I won't be there uh, tomorrow. But scouts are... Our uh, spring religious award class starts next Saturday morning, 9 a.m., here at the church, the God in Church class. It's uh, four sessions live for scouts in grades 6 through 8. If you haven't signed up yet, but you might be interested, you ought to talk to me this morning. love to have you join with us. And, um, and then I'll add my invitation to our membership workshop tonight. If you're part of the Bethany family, if you've been checking us out for a while and would just like to learn more about our church, it's a great place to come and do that. Learn what we believe, where we're headed, uh, and how you can be involved. And we provide a light dinner uh, during that meeting. 5 to seven thirty is the time frame. And we would, uh, we could really use a few more. So if you're uh, able to come, I hope you'll consider coming and let, let me know that this morning. Um, this morning, I, I didn't put notes in the bulletin for you to follow along in, uh, but I've titled the sermon, Gospel Unity, and uh, as any good educational endeavor, we have a word of the day, church. The word of the day is imprimatur. I want you to say that word with me. Ready? Imprimatur. Imprimatur means a declaration or mark of approval, an official sanction coming from the Latin, let it be printed. Often an imprimatur would occur at the front part of a book and that book would carry an imprimatur vastly used by the Catholic Church in eras gone by to say this book is sanctioned, it's authorized. We are giving our seal of approval to this book. Uh, Everyone knows that Scouting is an organization that has made great use of official marks of approval, or an imprimatur. Every badge on a scout's shirt represents some form of imprimatur, whether that be a council strip and unit numbers signifying the location of that scout's involvement in the program. Whether it be leadership positions which are worn on the sleeve, uh, training certifications that have been achieved, and award recognition. Scouts, if you have the imprimatur of Eagle Scout, would you stand up for a sec? If you are an Eagle Scout, you have that imprimatur all over the room. Thank you. You may be seated. Scouts, if you have the imprimatur of scouting's, uh, scouting's uh, recognition of excellence in camping, kind of the National Honor Society of Scouting called Order of the Arrow, if you wear that on your uniform, you have the imprimatur of the OA, stand up. These are individuals who have done camping stuff. Thank you. You may be seated. Scouts, if you have earned a religious award somewhere along the way um, in your scouting journey and you wear on your uniform the imprimatur of a religious award, would you stand up? Let us see you. And finally, you may be seated, Scouts, uh, as a youth, there's a national leadership program called Junior Leadership Training. Uh, When I was a Scout, which was like 100 years ago, it had a different name, and I wear it. It was called Brown C back then, but Junior Leadership Training, if you have the imprimatur of JLT, would you stand up? Uh, these are scouts who've gone through that highest level, and just a few because it's, it's a pretty high thing. Let me ask you this morning, does it matter whether one has an official mark of approval? And I'm going to answer that question this way. Yes, it does. Having an official and premature matters. For example, try driving a car with no license plate and see what happens, okay? The license plate is the imprimatur of our state's Department of Motor Vehicles, saying that that vehicle has the imprimatur or the official seal of approval to be on the road. Try driving with no driver's license. What will happen? Besides the fact that you'll probably wreck the car, right? The driver's license matters. It's the official certification of approval for someone to operate a motor vehicle. Try entering, uh, try getting on an airplane without official ID with you. What will happen? You will be turned away at the gate. Try entering another country without a passport. Will they let you in? Answer, no. Now, I would say this. Does that mean that you cannot do any of those things without official approval? And the answer is no, it doesn't mean that. You can do those things without official approval, but you will probably get in trouble, you will probably be detained, and you very well likely may lose your privileges going forward. The imprimatur matters. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul describes a time when he and Barnabas and Titus traveled up to Jerusalem to present themselves before the great leaders of the Jerusalem church. They are named, they present themselves before Peter and James and John, and they receive their imprimatur for the gospel message that Paul was preaching and for the apostolic ministry that Paul and Barnabas were undertaking. They received an imprimatur, an official endorsement, a seal of approval. And having presented their work and receiving that imprimatur, Paul forever codified the unity of the truth of the gospel. Our our series in the book of Galatians, I've titled The Truth of the Gospel. Our text today is where that title comes from. And what happens when Paul receives that official seal of blessing from the great three leaders of the Jerusalem church for his ministry to the non-Jewish world which was unthinkable to many Jews. Would, would God really love people other than us? And Paul was that apostle to the non-Jewish world, what we would call the Gentiles. And Paul, receiving the imprimatur of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, received from them their approval and blessing and thereby codified the unity of the gospel, whether it was preached to Jews or non-Jews, it was the same gospel. Hence my title, Gospel Unity. I want to begin by uh, reading a few verses from last week's text to remind us of the context. Jeremiah led us through the end of chapter one, and I want to begin reading in chapter one, verse 15. You follow along in your Bible as I read 15 through 20 of chapter one in Galatians. Paul writes this. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, Paul's talking about God here, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. I did not immediately consult with anyone, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the only place that we are told that after his conversion, Paul escaped to Arabia, to a land of the desert. We're not told what he did. He does indicate that it was a three-year period of time. And my guess is that it was during these three years after his conversion that Paul went to God's seminary of the desert that somehow God met with him and taught him, and he was able to look back on his early, very, very religious, very Jewish life, and Paul was able to reframe all that learning in light of the new relationship he had with God through his son Jesus. Paul grew spiritually during this time and emerged a leader and teacher in the church, but before any of that happened, he was whisked away by God into Arabia, into the desert for three years. We read this, I went away into Arabia and returned again to, to Damascus. And after three years, this is that period of time, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Now, that's another name for Peter, to visit Cephas and returned and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul is recounting his spiritual story and the geography that accompanied it. Here's my story. I met Christ on the Damascus Road. I was converted supernaturally. Jesus himself spoke to me out of the cloud. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then as I came to this new faith, I lost my sight for a while and then it came back and then God whisked me away into a three-year period of preparation where I had to relearn what it meant to be a follower of God. The ways that I had followed God were, were sincere, but they were off. And I had to understand that the Messiah was Jesus himself, that long-awaited one of the Jews, and after emerging from this, he pays visit to Jerusalem. Jump ahead to chapter two and verse one, where we start today. He says this in chapter two, verse one. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. The question that is begged here is 14 years after what? And I'm here to tell you that the answer is not super clear to me. It could have been 14 years after Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road and came to faith. It could have been 14 years after his season of training in Arabia. It could have been 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem. Any of those things apply, all are true, but what we know is when chapter two begins, it begins with a field trip to the city of Jerusalem. and so as we do so, what we're going to see in this portion of the chapter is the truth of the gospel becomes evident when it is examined. Where does this examination of the truth of the gospel happen? It happens in Jerusalem. And I want to note on the screen that there are a number of visits that we know Paul paid to Jerusalem, the, the visit after he left Damascus. And these are mostly recorded in, in the book of Acts. And so he had that visit where he stayed for 15 days and he met with Peter and he also met James, but none of the other leaders. And then he came back. And that is in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 11, there's another visit where Paul goes to Jerusalem because a famine is spreading across the, the world of that day, particularly centered in Israel, and and Paul is going to be commissioned by the church leaders in Jerusalem to go out and carry the gospel message to the Roman world of that day, to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and they said to him, here's what we want you to do. We want you to remember the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul said, I am happy to do that. So that when you follow Paul's missionary journeys, everywhere he went, he said, the faith that I'm proclaiming is rooted in Jerusalem. And that church there is suffering greatly under a famine. And if you are blessed by the gospel, you ought to give a gift to help those brothers there who are suffering everywhere he went. All three missionary journeys, 10 years of Paul's life, were consumed with carrying the gospel to Gentiles, and everywhere he went, he worked on collecting this collection, the Jerusalem collection, to bless the needy, starving people in the site where the church began. We read about that in Acts 11, and this, I believe, is the visit that we are studying today in Galatians 2. Uh, Later, there will be the Jerusalem Council visit, which is recorded greatly for us in Acts chapter 15. After that, Paul makes a trip to Jerusalem after his second missionary journey, and then again, after his third missionary journey. It's on that visit that Paul is arrested, incarcerated, and uh, uh, persecuted, ends up being uh, protected From death by the Romans, but they sent him to Rome, ultimately to appear before Caesar, and we know that it was in that journey somewhere along the way that Paul was put to death and martyred for his faith. All of this to say that the Bible speaks of this particular visit after 14 years, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, and as we continue, I am reading this morning from the English Standard Version. You might have a different translation, that's fine. In the ESV, verse 2 says this: <clears throat> It says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. The ESV is a little clunky, I think, in terms of modern-day vocabulary. And so I put on the screen this same verse out of the New Living Translation, which is a little easier to understand. And I want you to note how the NLT puts it, verse 2. Here's Paul saying, I went to Jerusalem. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Because God let him know, Paul, it's time to go to Jerusalem. This was God's decision. God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those considered to be the leaders of the church. And I shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. Now, notice this last sentence. He says, I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all of my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. Paul will, a number of times in Scripture, use the metaphor of running a race to describe his apostolic ministry and his walk with Christ, and he does so in this verse. In the ESV that I uh, teach from, he says it this way, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And that sentence gives me pause Because it makes me wonder, was Paul worried that he might have gotten the gospel message wrong? Look at the wording in your Bible. I think our English translations could kind of lead us to that conclusion. Paul's uncertain here. Paul's waffling, is is what I have been preaching to the non-Jewish people, is that okay? Is that the gospel? Is that why Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the elders of the church? And I would say that I think you could read that into his statement. But I would also say this. If you know much about the Apostle Paul, there's something in that that doesn't sound right to me. Uh, If you know the Apostle Paul, listen to me. Paul lacked no confidence. Amen? Amen. Paul, Paul had confidence in spades. He was not a waffler. Paul was kind of rude sometimes, bold, to the point. And so to read this verse and say, Paul, are you, when you say you wanted to make sure that you weren't running the race in vain, are you somehow questioning the gospel message that you had been preaching And I would say this, because of what I know about Paul, I just don't think that's where it's coming from. So I would say this, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty regarding the truth of the gospel. However, there was something that was threatening his fruitfulness in sharing the truth of the gospel. And I believe it was this. Paul needed to obtain the verification or the imprimatur of the church leadership for his ministry to the Gentiles. I think this is why God prompted him or revealed him, Paul, go to Jerusalem. Paul, go there and share with those elders what you have been preaching to the non Jewish people. And I want you to get their imprimatur for your ministry. Not that you're uncertain about it, but that having their official seal of approval will, will help you in sharing. To the non-Jewish world, where, by the way, Jews were scattered all across the Roman Empire at this time. When Paul would go to a Roman city, he would often start his ministry where? In the Jewish synagogues that were there, the gathering places of the Jews And there was something in having the imprimatur, the official certification seal of blessing of the leaders of the home church where the faith of Jesus had began. And what was the outcome of Paul and Barnabas and Titus presenting themselves? Well, notice verse 3. It says... But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, let me again put this verse on the screen in the NLT. He says, and they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. They supported me. They granted their imprimatur. Paul and Barnabas and Titus go before those great leaders of the Jerusalem church. He says, here is the gospel message, the truth of the gospel that I am preaching across the Roman world. And it came from here. Do I have your seal of approval for that message? And the answer, verse 3, was what? They said, yes. We approve the same gospel that is preached among the people of faith in Jerusalem can be preached among people of faith in Galatia and Cappadocia and in Antioch and in Rome. All across that Jewish world, the same, we give you our seal of approval. And then Paul adds this somewhat awkward, embarrassing thing of, oh yeah, and Titus, the Greek kid who was with us, the the guys in Jerusalem didn't even make him get circumcised. And I know that for some of us, saying that word in church is uncomfortable, amen? (laughs) Why is Paul talking about that? And the answer is this. Circumcision was the outward symbol of the Jewish people. The God had called the Jewish people, and he had given them this rite of passage, this external symbol of their covenant relationship with God, which was seen at eight days old. Every baby boy born into a Jewish family was circumcised. And that became the mark of, I am Jewish, I I bear the sign of the covenant on my body. And as we have talked about, part of the reason that that comes in is going to carry us to the second point in uh, our series, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. And it has to do with a group of troublemakers Who had been following Paul's ministry across the Roman world and had been going in among the new churches that Paul was starting and telling all those non Jewish people, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you first need to become a Jew. And in order to do that, you have to start obeying some of the Jewish ceremonial laws and. And among those those laws and rules first and foremost is this, every male must be circumcised. So if you want to live in faith with God, you have to have this outward sign done. And Paul, as you know, the book of Galatians is a book about freedom. And Paul says, no, that's not true. That sign was for Jews. But if you're not a Jew, you can still be in relationship with God and you don't have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian It's a matter of internal faith, and you are not compelled to obey those rules. It's fascinating to me that Paul mentions circumcision here, giving us this clue that he's responding to those who were teaching these Gentiles, if you want to be a Christian, you must also become like us Jews. And Paul, when he presented his ministry before the elders of the Jerusalem church and received their imprimatur, was being told, you are fine to preach a gospel of freedom to non-Jewish people. They don't have to follow our laws. Let me ask you this question. What might have been the outcome if Paul had not sought the Imprimatur of the Jerusalem church leaders for his ministry to the Gentiles. If Paul had not gotten their blessing for his teaching of the gospel of freedom to non Jewish people, here's what I think would have happened I think every culture and every ethnicity would have been compelled to take on Jewish norms and values. It would have meant that non-Jewish people would have been compelled to do no work on the Sabbath, can't light a fire, can't turn on the light switch, can't lift your hand to do any work. For most of us, that sounds like a good deal though, right? We love our days off. It also would have meant compliance with Jewish dietary laws, including... No shellfish, no crab, no lobster, no oysters, no clams. How many of you would that grieve if you were never allowed to touch those things, right? That's some good stuff. How about this one? No bacon, no barbecued pork. Can we have a a season of, of corporate mourning for us right now, right? Like that would be bad. But Jews, because of dietary laws, could not touch those things. It would have meant observing Jewish holidays for the Gentiles. Hanukkah, Sukkot, Passover would have been expected. It would have meant following ritual cleansing laws and a whole host Of other things and I just would say this well I have awesome respect I love the Jewish people I love the Jewish faith I love the land of Israel been there many times we'll be going again as soon as this war is over and we can take our team from the church and and I love all things Jewish but I am not Jewish I'm Gentile I I respect and appreciate them but I'll say this, I'm glad that I don't have to live under Jewish kosher laws today. That, that's a hardship. It has a purpose for them, and it's part of, you know, God's plan for them. Uh, several years ago, I read this book. Uh, it's called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible And the author of this book is a guy named A.J. Jacobs, and he works for Esquire magazine. He's not particularly a religious guy, grew up in a secular home in New York City. But he said, you know what? I think I'm going to take all those rules literally for one year and see if I could do it. And so, and he wrote this book, which was a New York Times bestseller, and this is both inspiring and hilariously funny to read about this guy trying to do that. And he went from being a pretty normal-looking business guy to looking like that over a period of time, and he even wore in New York City, you know, he took his dog for a walk, hint, hint, just to watch people's reaction to him. And he writes about what a year of doing everything he could to literally follow the Jewish regulatory rules was like for him. And it was an amazingly difficult thing, but this guy like leaned into it hard. I think one of the funniest things is, and please forgive my um, indelicacy here, but part of the Jewish ceremonial laws meant that there was a particular uh, time of the month for women that would happen and that they had to follow these certain rules about that. And one of those rules is that if it was at that time for a woman, anything she sat on became unclean and had to be ceremonially washed and couldn't be used for the rest of the day. And if you did like sit on the same chair after her during that particular time, you became unclean. And so his wife had that season and just, Decided TO PULL HER HUSBAND'S CHAIN. SO SHE WENT AROUND THEIR APARTMENT AND SAT ON EVERY SEAT IN THE HOUSE. AND THEN SHE STOOD BACK AND LOOKED AT HIM AND LIKE, "What YOU GOING TO DO NOW? AND IT'S FUNNY TO US TO THINK ABOUT TRYING TO COMPLY WITH THE HOST OF THOSE THINGS. I AM GLAD THAT PAUL DID SEEK THE imprimatur OF THE CHURCH LEADERS IN JERUSALEM IN HIS DAY For understanding that responding to God in faith didn't mean you had to become Jewish if you weren't Jewish. That God's rules for the Jewish people were particular, but they were for them, not for most of us. And as we read these things, we're going to continue. The next couple of verses now, once Paul presents his gospel and the elders examine it and they said, we approve, the next thing we're going to see is that the truth of the gospel is then defended when it is attacked. And I want to begin at verse 4. It says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. Paul's describing his enemies. These guys followed him on his missionary journeys, came up from Jerusalem, went into the churches where Paul had preached the truth of the gospel and told the Gentiles, you're Gentiles, you don't come under these rules. These guys followed in and said, well, Paul presented the gospel, but he didn't really take it far enough. And actually, you do need to follow our Jewish rules. And so in verse four, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, Paul describes trying to chain non-Jewish people to the Jewish regulations was a form of slavery. And yet these Jewish zealots who were so zealous for their faith said if the gospel's going to go to non-Jews, they better become like us or it doesn't really count. And Paul takes these guys on. He's going to defend the truth of the gospel that is coming under a particular attack. Notice verse five. He says, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is the verse I took my uh, uh, title for this series because it seems to me that this is central to Paul's message. He's defending the truth of the gospel. He says, we did not give in for a moment. And again, if you know anything about Paul, Paul was feisty. Paul was articulate. Paul was brilliant in mind. His heart was passionate. You didn't want to tangle with the apostle Paul because chances are you would find yourself in a dogfight with him. And Paul says here, we did not give in for a moment to this foolishness that Gentiles ought to behave like Jews before they can be Christians. There are truths in the Christian life church that seem to dwell in tension with one another and that I believe God has called us to hold in tension. And one of those truths is the balance of truth and grace. Truth is standing up for what is right and boldly spoken. Grace is showing love and kindness and mercy. And I'm here to tell you, church, one of the most artful dances that people of faith must walk is that balance between truth and grace. When do you focus on standing up for what is right? And when do you lean toward compassion and love and mercy and kindness? And I want to tell you, the answer is not one or the other, ever. The answer is always going to be to hold those two truths in, though they dwell in tension with one another. I think God wants us to dwell with those things in tension. And Paul clearly here has given us an example of focusing on what is true. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment. Paul was ardent, resolved, unflinching when it came to the truth of the gospel. Why? Because the truth of the gospel needed to be preserved. It was on this occasion in Galatians 2 when Paul went to Jerusalem and spoke before the elders of the church and presented the truth of the gospel he had been preaching to non-Jewish people. It had to be defended at this moment. This same kind of thing can be seen in the life of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. You know that Luther had posted 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany. He had written extensively about his concern over hypocrisy and unbiblical conduct of the church of his day. He railed against the church And the church eventually would call Luther to account at an event called the Diet of Worms where he was threatened with excommunication and death if he did not recant of his accusations against the practices of the church of his day. Luther's famous response, you probably have heard it, was this, Here I stand. I can do no other. Luther camped in truth. He was a bulldog for the truth. Luther didn't have a lot of grace. If you read (laughs) the biography of Luther and you read about the way that he debated, Luther was a jerk. I mean, that guy was mean. And, and, And he had no patience or little grace that he would exude. But God had fitted him and used him at a particular time. But what about grace? There's a current illustration of grace. Some of you know of the ministry of Alistair Begg, a Scottish native pastoring in the Midwest of a large church, a very influential, gifted Bible teacher, a man used of God greatly, who right now is under scrutiny because of his counsel to a grandmother in his church. This grandmother had a, has a non-church granddaughter, a non-religious granddaughter, who was going to have a wedding ceremony for she and her girlfriend. And the grandmother, being a a woman of faith of another generation, went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. Do I go to the wedding? Or would going to the wedding mean that I approve of the wedding? Because I really don't. I don't think this is the right thing that God would want. And And Begg said to this grandmother a bit of counsel that is controversial. And here's what Alistair Begg said. He said to this grandmother of faith, he said, Grandma, your relationship with that granddaughter is going to endure for decades to come. And my counsel to you is this. Have you told your granddaughter that you don't agree with this notion of a same-sex marriage? And she said, yes, I did. Then he said, here's my counsel to you. Go to your granddaughter's wedding ceremony and buy her a gift. If you've spoken your conscience to her, then let her do what she will. And he said, because if you don't go, there will be a wound with that granddaughter that will be carried forever. And people of faith are crucifying Alistair Begg for that council right now. Compromiser, failing to stand for the truth. So let me tell you something. I think Beg is right on this. I think that this is an opportunity for grace. I do not believe that attending a wedding ceremony is the same thing as casting your approval of the decision. I think wedding ceremonies are things that families do because we're family. And you don't always agree with your family. Can I get an amen to that one? Wow. You don't always agree with your family, but they will always be your family. So what do people of faith do? Is it truth or is it grace? Or as I've shared this morning, these things seem to me to dwell in tension with one another and neither must ever be released and set aside. We simply must live with the tension. Paul has certainly leaned to the side of grace in his encounter and has painted a picture for us that there are times we ought to be kind of a bulldog about what is right. But there are also times we ought to be people of kindness and grace and forgiveness. Let me move to the final thought I have in this passage, and that is number three, the truth of the gospel is the same for every person. And I want to pick up the passage in uh, Galatians 2 verse 6. I love having this little fan up here, but it blows the pages of my Bible around. So I'm, one day I'm going to start reading the wrong thing because of that. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. And I'll read down through 10. Paul writes this. And from those who seem to be influential, he's talking about Peter, James, and John. From those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul's not super impressed with their credentials, right? Right? He's like, we're just guys. We're just fellow brothers in the Lord. But he says, from those who seem to be influential, those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't change his gospel message. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, not Jewish people, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, Peter was called to a particularly Jewish ministry. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul says, listen, God called me to share it to non-Jews. He called Peter to share it to the Jews. It's the same God and the same gospel, just different contexts different assignments verse 9 and when james and cephas that is peter and john who seemed to be the pillars perceived the grace that was given to me they gave the right hand of fellowship to barnabas and me this is the imprimatur they shook their hands they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I love this because here's what I think the takeaway from this passage is. There is one gospel. The truth of the gospel does not change depending on the context, the same gospel can be presented to Jews and Gentiles, and it is still the gospel. I would say it this way. Today, there is not one gospel for men and another different gospel for women. We all have the same gospel. There is no gospel that is true that applies only to Hispanics or blacks or Asians, which is different than white people, There is no gospel for children or teens that is different for adults. Now, catch this one. There is no true gospel that is designated for Baptists that is different for Methodists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or Mormons or Sikhs or Muslims. There is only one true gospel, and it is unchanging regardless of the audience or the context. And I think Paul nailed that down in chapter two. You may say, Pastor Tim, okay, you talked a lot about this gospel. What is the gospel? And I just wanna remind you with some very familiar scripture passages that crystallize the gospel. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, probably the most succinct articulation of the gospel in the Bible is this. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Somebody say "Amen." amen. This is the gospel. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone, whether male or female, young or old, whether any ethnicity or any spiritual background, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. And richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. (coughs) This is good news. Because it means no matter who you are or what you've been through. Or where you've come from. If you will call on the name of the Lord. If you will believe in that death burial. That's the gospel and you will be saved. Maybe the most familiar. Will you read this from the screen with me? John three 16. Let's read together. For God so loved the world and gave Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I would submit to you that these very familiar passages of Scripture are very succinct and clear articulations of the gospel. I would say to you, if you're here, and you've never responded to the gospel, this is what you need to do in your walk with God. Do you believe? Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection? Are you okay with Jesus being Lord, which means ruler or master of boss? Can God be your God? Do you trust in that? Are you willing to turn from your rebellion against God and turn toward God? This is the gospel. No one will come to the Lord any other way than through this message. This is the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Paul making so epically clear what he intended for us to understand about the truth of the gospel. And I thank you that the gospel is the same no matter who we are or what era we've lived in. I thank you, God, that we are not compelled to live under the Jewish laws as non-Jewish people, but that in grace and freedom, you've called us to yourself to be people of faith. I pray this morning for anyone who has not yet put their faith in Christ. Lord, move in their hearts and cause them to reach out to you and to believe in you and to trust in you and may that truth transform their hearts and lives. As we continue in prayer, if you're here and you've never prayed that prayer, but you sense God moving you to it, I just encourage you to pray even now where you're seated. And I'll close with a sample prayer. You could pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. God would hear you. Say to him this, Lord in heaven, I trust the truth of the gospel. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Thank you for him paying the penalty of my sin a debt I could never pay on my own. Thank you that he rose again on the third day, proving his victory over sin and death, proving he was God. I'm trusting in him. Lord, help me live for you. Help me live differently. I'm trusting in you, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. I preached a little long this morning. I know that that doesn't shock a lot of you. But we're going to take an offering as we close. And I'm going to have the scouts come forward. And this is going to be an offering to bless the ministry of Scouts BSA here in our church. And this is something we do to stand alongside them. So as we sing this final song, uh, offering plates, come on up, scouts now. Walk forward now and pass those things. Come up to the front row and then start from the front and move your way back. And we will sing a closing song together.